Welcome to Practical Christian Living. You might be haunted by guilt from the past, but you don't need to be because your sin is gone. My sin is gone. When I'm born again, when I was born again, it was such a radical change that the Bible tells me that the old person who I was is dead. And even baptism is a symbol of the burial of that old person. The new covenant that Jesus brought with him meant we can actually be clean and completely forgiven of our sin. No guilt, no shame, because Jesus has made all things new and he makes us new creations. We have a brand new start, unlimited forgiveness and grace, and the promise of eternity with Him. With more on the New Covenant and part two of our message out of Hebrews chapter 9, here's Robert Furrow. The sanctuary in the church that I grew up in was a very quiet place. When we walked into that room, there was a sense of, of reverence. There was something emotional about that. God. God's here and I wanted to be where God was but I'll tell you what I would never exchange what I have today in Jesus to what I had back then because back then I went to a room I went to religion in order to try to find God but today I walk with him I know him I get up in the morning with him and I go to bed at night with him I know him I know the living God and I would never want to substitute what I have today for what I had then and that's what the point the writers of the Hebrews is making. There was an earthly sanctuary, but what you have today is far greater than what you had there. Some of you guys grew up in the Catholic Church. And maybe even what I'm talking about in the Methodist Church was even more prominent there. You walked into there and there was the lighting of candles and there was the incense and there was an emotional tie to it. And maybe like me in the Methodist Church, you liked that. But would you ever exchange a relationship with Jesus for works again? Would you ever go back to just going through works, not have a relationship with Christ? It is that relationship that makes things stand. And so he says, there was an earthly sanctuary. Then he goes on, for a tabernacle was prepared in the first part in which was a lampstand, the table and the showbread. And it is called the sanctuary. So you would walk up to the temple again, 45 feet long, 15 feet wide. You'd walk into the first curtain. There was a curtain over the main door. It wasn't a big one. It was a littler one. You'd walk through the first curtain. You would see in the back of the room a big veil that would separate the second room. And then there was a little incense altar right in front of the curtain. As you come into the room, there was a table of showbread on one side with 12 loaves of bread on it. And the most dominant part of it would be the candlestick, wouldn't it? That menorah that would be about six feet high and would have those lights burning on them. And those lights were to always be lit. Whenever they would set up that tabernacle, they would light those lights. And then they would tear the tabernacle down and travel, put it back up again. They would light those lights. Those lights were obviously a symbol of the light of God in this world. They're a symbol of Jesus because Jesus said, I am the light of the world. But they're a symbol of you and me because we're the light of this earth. The Bible says we're the light of the world. We're the salt of the earth and we are the light. And that candlestick spoke of the light that we have. Our lives, our bodies are the temple. In us is a sanctuary and we have a light that shines to those that are lost. The table and the showbread that was on it, the bread spoke of the 12 tribes of Israel and of God's fellowship with them. We talk today about breaking bread together. Breaking bread is not about sharing a meal. Breaking bread is about the fellowship that we have when we share a meal. 
And in their day, it was more pronounced. That's why Jesus said in Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man would open that door, I will come in and dine with him and he with me. That dining is a form of fellowship. The greatest thing that you desire, the greatest thing that can bless you, what you really want, you might not even know you want it, but what you really want is that close, intimate fellowship with God. That's what will really satisfy you. You may be, be pursuing drugs or alcohol or pleasure or sex or, or, or anything else or power or fame. You may be pursuing all kinds of things thinking they will satisfy you, but I guarantee you when you achieve them, they will not. It is that fellowship with God and that bread represented that fellowship with Israel. You ever prepared a meal for your family? You thought, I want to make them something special. Maybe you're making your special spaghetti for them. And so you go through all, you start at like noon and you put everything together and it takes you all day to cook. Then you call the family together and 10 minutes later, they're done. And you say, no more, I'm ordering pizza next week. I am not going to cook like that, right? Has that not played out in homes here, huh? Has that not happened? Can you imagine how long it took them to prepare their meals? Much longer than it takes us with all our conveniences. And they would gather together and their meals were drawn out. They would break the bread and they would dip it in the different sauces and they would begin to fellowship and talk. And that all took place around the table. The table of showbread speaks even of Israel having a relationship with God. Jesus said, I am the bread of life and we have a fellowship with him. We break bread in communion with him. We have that fellowship. Now, there's the candelabra. There's the table of showbread. There's the bread that's on it. And in the back was the incense burner. Now it goes on to say then, as it goes into uh, the second part of the sanctuary, it says, verse three, and behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had a golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot of manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. When you looked at the back of the room, the way it's worded here makes you think that the altar of incense was inside the holiest of all, but it wasn't. This back room in the temple or the tabernacle was 15 by 15 by 15. And it was the holiest place on earth, wherever they set it up. They didn't set it up on holy ground. It's because that tabernacle was placed there and it was holy because God's presence would show up. Inside of you, having the temple of the Holy Spirit is the holiest place because God's presence is there. That's what makes you holy. That's what makes you significant. So here is this room and in front of it was an incense burner. They burn incense. That incense would fill the temple. The incense represented the prayers of God's people. The Bible says that you have not because you ask not. The Bible says the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. Your prayers make a difference. And as we pray, the smell of our prayers, the aroma of our prayers goes up into the very presence of God. God is there and he receives those things. And our prayers make a difference. There are preachers today who teach that our prayers don't make a difference. They talk about the sovereignty of God and God predestines us and everything is all predetermined and uh, nothing can change. Which my question would be, then why pray? They say, so it can change you. Well, wait a minute, you said everything was predetermined. They create for themselves a theological issue because there's evil in the world. And if God predetermined everything, God would be responsible for evil. No, our God is sovereign and our God does predestine us to be conformed into the image of his son. But God gives us a choice. We have a decision that we can make. 
And with that choice, evil enters into the world. And right now, I'm trying frantically to remember why I'm talking about this at all. Anytime, <laughs> just a little clue, okay? Anytime I start repeating myself the same thing over and over again, in my mind, I'm going, what was I saying? I can't remember what I was saying. Why am I saying this? Just keep saying it. Maybe it'll come back. If you just keep saying the same thing, it'll, that's what's going on in my brain. All right, so let's go back here to, um, all right, so the covenant, uh, where am I at? Verse, you guys can't even agree. <laughs> you guys don't even know. All right, uh, so he's talking about the, um, the altar of incense, right? <laughs> so our prayers make a difference. That's what I was talking about, sovereignty, because God has given us that privilege of praying for people and our prayers make a difference and they do indeed change people's destiny. Now, you would go behind the veil and there was the most important piece of furniture of all, the Ark of the Covenant. Now, you guys know what the Ark of the Covenant looks like. Not because you've been in a lot of Bible studies, but because there it is, Indiana Jones. Is that... Is that Indiana Jones? Is that what it is? All right, that's why you know, right? Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade is the reason you know what the Ark, and they get it, did a good job of recreating what it looked like. It even shined when it came out. That's because there's lights down in there that are shining up on it, but it wasn't supposed to be, right? Now, that Ark was made of acacia wood. It was covered in gold, and the lid was the mercy seat. The lid was made out of solid gold and inside was the jar of manna, which spoke of God's provision, was the rod of Aaron that budded and that would spoke of God's position that he gives you. Remember, there was a challenge to Aaron's authority and so he put down his rod and some of the people put down their rods and the ones that budded was God's choice. So God chose Aaron. God's the one who chooses, by the way. You might think you get into a position where you get to choose, but God's really the one who does. And so there's the manna, the budding of Aaron's rod, and then the Ten Commandments, the tablets that Moses brought down out of the mountain were placed inside of the Ark of the Covenant. And then over the top of those commandments was the mercy seat. You might think that the Ten Commandments are the center of Israel, but the mercy seat is the center. Without the mercy seat, we would be doomed by the very commandments that are under them. And so the mercy seat was placed on top of it. Now, here's the thing. When the glory of the Lord appeared in the temple, it appeared between the cherubim, the two angels that were at the top. The glory of the Lord would appear there. And that's what made the Ark of the Covenant so special. I mean, it would be the greatest archaeological find, right? The movie had it right. If someone discovers the Ark of the Covenant this week, it'll be amazing. And we'll all watch it on the news and we'll all be amazed that this thing that was, what was it, 3,500 years ago, created by Moses, would be discovered? But what really made it significant was that the glory of God shone above that mercy seat. And because God has given us mercy, the glory of God shines in our lives. Without a mercy seat, we wouldn't have the glory of God. We wouldn't be the light of the world. We wouldn't be able to do that. It's because of those very things. Now, he goes on now to the service in the tabernacle. Verse 5, and above it were the cherubim, these are angels, of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things, we can now, not now speak in detail. Now, at this point, I don't know how you feel about that last verse. Of these things, we cannot speak in detail. Maybe you think, well, it seems like we've been speaking in detail. Maybe you're thinking, oh, I'm glad he didn't speak in detail because Robert would go on and on and on forever. <laughs> I wish he would have given us detail. I mean, the book of Hebrews is 13 chapters long. It's not a short epistle. He certainly had room. He should have given us detail. Nevertheless, he moves on. Verse 6. Now, when these things had been thus prepared, 
The priest always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing his service. And I put the emphasis on the word always. Because every day in the tabernacle in the temple, from the time that Moses had it built in the wilderness until 66 AD in the temple, with very short respites in between, there was a few times in history where they didn't do it, very short respites in between, they had somebody going in every day taking care of the candlestick, every day taking care of the incense burner. They always went in every day for 1,500 years. Now, their calendars were 360 days a year, which really brings us to the question, did something happen to change the calendar where there's 365 days a year? But their calendars, the Babylonian calendar was 360 days a year. 360 days a year for 1,500 years, that guy went in there. Religion becomes tedious. The first time that a priest got that, that was his responsibility, was going and take care of that candlestick and that, that incense of altar. Don't you think the first time that he went in, it was like, oh, I'm in the sanctuary of God. But how about like the 11th, you know, 100th time that he did it? He'd be like, I'm going in again. There's the candlestick. There's the altar of incense. I'm doing it. The priest would always do it. They were always about doing it. And then verse 7 but into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he had offered for himself and for the people's sins that were committed in ignorance. Now, you might say, well, that's only once a year as compared to the 360 or 365, whatever it was, days a year that the guy went into the sanctuary. Only once a year did he go on the backside into the holies of holies. And so once a year, but for 1500 years. 1,500 times that guy went back and sprinkled that blood on that sacrifice. It was done again and again and again and again and again and again and again. 1,500. If we saw that played out for us again, it would be amazing the first time Aaron did it. But after a while, we'd be going, are we really going to have to watch all 1,500 of them? Now, here's the point. It was symbolic. It says, no, excuse me, verse 8, the Holy Spirit indicating this that the way into the holiest of all was not yet manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to conscience. He now speaks of the weakness of the original tabernacle and later on the temple. Even though the presence of God was there, it could not cleanse people's conscience. It only covered sin which meant that the sin that you committed, you were guilty of. There was guilt and there was shame. Guilt is a funny thing. Psychologists and psychiatrists tell us today that people go insane because of guilt. Something that they've done, they can't forgive themselves. They can't forget about it. And that inward stress, that inward pressure presses upon them mentally and they end up snapping. Something ends up breaking because of guilt. And the thing is, is that we preachers have been blamed for that. Because they say, oh, people go to church and they hear you can't cheat, steal, or lie. And then they go out, they cheat, they steal, and they lie, and they feel guilty. But here's the thing. There are people that have never been in church. And they cheat, steal, and lie, and are still guilty. Whatever a preacher says doesn't make them guilty. And here's the other thing. A psychologist and a psychiatrist have no answer to guilt. When you, if you go to them and you say, I did this, and I feel guilty about it, I just can't get rid of it. It just always haunts me. All they can do is tell you, you're just like everybody else. Everybody else is guilty too. That's their answer. Don't feel so bad because everybody else is guilty too. 
As if you're going to go, oh, okay, if everybody else is guilty, then I'm fine. They can't take care of it, but God can. But that old covenant, that old sanctuary, it could cover sin, but it couldn't take care of your conscience. Your conscience was still guilty. There was still guilt and shame that was associated there. It says in verse 10, concerned only with food and drinks and various washings and fleshly ordinance imposed until the time of the Reformation. That wasn't Calvin, Luther and Knox, by the way. It was the Reformation of Jesus. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and of calves, but his own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. And I put the emphasis on the word once. They always went in. Jesus went in once. They went in year after year after year after year for 1,500 years. And Jesus went in once and sat down by the right hand of the Father. How much more powerful is the new covenant? They had to do it again and again and again and again and again. And Jesus did it once. And he sat down. And we have received eternal salvation. Theirs was temporary. It had to be done again. And it had to be done again. And it had to be done again. But you and I have received eternity, eternal redemption. Verse 13, for if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, we'll talk about the ashes of a heifer another day, all right? Sprinkled them unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh. How much more the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanses your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Whereas in the old sanctuary in the blood of bulls and goats cannot cleanse your conscience, the work Jesus did upon the cross cleanses your conscience. You today are not guilty. You might be haunted by guilt from the past, but you don't need to be because your sin is gone. My sin is gone. When I'm born again, when I was born again, it was such a radical change that the Bible tells me that the old person who I was is dead. And even baptism is a symbol of the burial of that old person. So that if today you were to take the most shameful thing that I've ever done and play it up on that screen, first of all, that'd be pretty horrible. Some of you guys here say, well, I would not want to see that. But I'll tell you something you don't want to see worse is your most shameful thing played upon that screen. You'd say, give me Roberts. Lay down. If it, if it is my choice between mine and his, do his. That's what I want to see. But here's the thing. While that was played, I might have some shame and I might feel guilty, but I would not have any guilt or any shame because that wasn't me. That's the old me. That's the dead me. That is gone because of death. And behold, all things are made new, the Bible says, for those of us that have come to him, so that not only is your sin gone, not only has your sin been removed, but your conscience has been cleansed. Now let that settle in for a minute. Take a deep breath. Breathe in that reality that your, I sound like I'm a new ager, doesn't it? Breathe in the reality of your consciousness and just, you know. <laughs> all right, so let's not do that, all right? But let's sink in the reality 
that not only is all of your sins forgiven and you've been given eternal salvation, but that your conscience is clean. All the guilt, all the shame, all the sin is gone. And you now have a brand new start, eternal redemption. It is complete. It is total and could never have been done by the law because the blood of bulls and goats couldn't do it. Why would you return to that? And so then it goes on to say, finally, in verse 15, and for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant. For those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Now, verse 15 is important. It's telling us that Jesus paid not only the price for our sins and everybody that would receive him afterwards, but he paid the price for all of those that were before. The blood of bulls and goats was only a type until Jesus came along and he would completely cleanse their sins and cleanse their consciousness. And why would we go back to anything in the world? Why would we go back to the tabernacle, even if that was in our past? Now, let me close with this thought. We're talking about the tabernacle and the, the temple, the glory of God that came and down on the tabernacle and came down on that temple. Well, Ezekiel saw something different. The Bible says that these people drew near to God with their lips, but their hearts were far from them. The last thing that God wants us to do is pay lip service to him. The last thing God wants us to do is to go to church and not really be following him. Some of you guys are doing that. Some of you guys did things last night that the Christians aren't to do. You're going to do things this week and you're not really even repenting from it. You're just going, I'm going to church to make things okay. I want, you're not making things okay, by the way. You're deceiving yourselves and thinking that you are, but you're not. Well, Israel had done that. They were paying lip service to God. They weren't really following him, but on the outward, it looked like they were. The Bible says that Ezekiel saw the temple and he saw the glory of God move above the temple. And then he saw the glory of God leave the temple go out the East Gate, go over the Kidron Valley, over the Mount of Olives and leave Jerusalem. What a sad day that was. The very glory that had descended when Solomon had dedicated that temple and when Moses dedicated the tabernacle and dwelt among Israel. It made Israel a unique nation that the glory of God dwelt among them. But there came a day because they, they weren't sincere where that glory left. Now, do you remember the path that Jesus brought took back into Jerusalem the week before he was crucified. The last week of the life of Jesus, he stayed at Lazarus's house. And then he went up over the Mount of Olives, that mount that the Holy Spirit had left. He went back down that Kidron Valley and he went back into the temple area. The glory of the Lord had returned through Jesus. And it is in Jesus as he comes into our life that the glory of the Lord returns. And if you're here today, and you have never committed your life to Christ. You've never begun to follow him. Maybe you've begun to go to church because you think I need to be religious. And it's a good thing you're here, but you can't be saved by going to church. The church never shed its blood for you. It is only by receiving the work of Jesus, by asking him to forgive you, that you can gain eternal redemption and the cleansing of your conscience and the removal of your sin. Stand with me, would you? And let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you as we consider the tabernacle and we look at these old pieces of furniture and that tent that was built that is no longer around and the temple that was destroyed by the Romans. And we consider these things that are here and we remember that they are a type of you and a type of us. And what makes us really significant 
is that the glory of God resides in us, the temple of the Holy Spirit. Lord, may we live lives worthy of that. And may we remember it as we move out and around our family and friends that in us spiritually is the glory of God. And may they be drawn to you because of that. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen. We pray that the Lord is speaking to you in a personal way here at Practical Christian Living. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, Calvary Tucson is open and holding physical services while being mindful of social distancing guidelines. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service online at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living Radio has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org, where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or have questions about salvation? Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson and Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living Sunday mornings at 8.30 on KGUN 9 TV. May we walk worthy while we wait for the return of our Savior. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.